0: Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long and you never need to host. That's our job. We invite best-selling and award-winning authors to discuss their stories, their works, and whatever else that might bounce around a writer's mind or flow through their pen. And we bring them free to some of the more than 100 public libraries in the Twin Cities metro area. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant, they can tell us the book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. We don't judge slackers or fakers or hummus dip makers. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This Clubbook podcast features Garth Stein at Dakota County's Galaxy Library in Apple Valley. Literary dynamo Garth Stein is best known by many for 2008's The Art of Racing in the Rain, a runaway hit that spent a consecutive 156 weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. In addition to penning several other well-received novels, Stein is also an accomplished playwright and film producer. Whose credits include a 1991 Academy Award win in the short film category. His newest book, A Sudden Light, is a masterful blend of ghost tale and coming of age story, centered around a 14 year old desperate to uncover the dark secrets hidden in his ancestral estate. Random House calls it a triumphant work of a master storyteller at the height of his power, and Bookless lauds it as simply haunting in all the right ways.
1: Um, thank you so much for having me out. I, I've been traveling quite a bit uh, in recent months uh, to promote my, my new book, and so I'm always uh, happy to come back to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And I'd also like to just let you guys know, uh, everywhere, everywhere else in the country, it's, it's spring. <laughs> um, I don't know what you guys got going on out there. There were some snowflakes as we were driving over. Um, uh, you could keep it, if you, want, if you want to cling to that, you can. But it, just so you know, uh, we all outside of this area are experiencing spring. Um, so I, yeah, so I've written four, four books. My new book I want to talk about in a little bit. But before we get to that, I want to tell you, a, a, I want to talk a little bit about my, my last book, which is The Art of Racing in the Rain, because that's generally probably why you're here. Um, it became very popular. It's narrated by a dog, and uh, and people and it's got race car driving in it, too. And so you know, people always say to me now, you know, they say, "Oh, whew, boy, did you come up with the perfect formula?" You know, uh, it, car. Everyone loves race cars. Everyone loves car. America is a country that's built around the automobile, and everyone loves dogs. You know, perfect. Put them together, add cover, make money, and and that's it's nice. That's the way it worked out, but. It's not the way it started, trust me. Uh, So I want to tell you how The Art of Racing the Rain came to be, and then I'll uh, talk a little bit about my new book. Um, I grew up in Seattle, uh, and then uh, when I graduated from high school, I wanted to get as far away from Seattle as possible. So I went to school, went to college in New York City, and I stayed in New York for 18 years. When we moved back to uh, Seattle in 2001, where I now live with my family, and we love it very much, while I was living in New York, I did a number of different kinds of jobs. Um, for the most part, though, what I did for about nine years, I worked as a documentary filmmaker. And uh, I really, really loved that, that whole thing. And at some point in my documentary film career, a film came across my desk. Uh, they were looking for distribution in the United States. It was a film that was made in Mongolia called State of Dogs. And it was about the belief among the nomadic people in Mongolia that the next incarnation for their dog would be as a person. And I, it was really a lovely film. I didn't get involved with it for a number of reasons, but I really, it stuck with me, the idea that dogs would come back as people, and I thought, you know, one day I'm gonna do something with that, but I had no idea what. So I was, uh, years passed, we moved back to Seattle, and in 2006, I remember the year, 2006, I was at a uh, reading of, uh, at Seattle Arts and Lectures, their big reading series there, and it was reading by Billy Collins, who's a very famous poet. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. Uh, he was the uh, National Poet Laureate uh, a number of years ago. He's a great poet. You, if, you, if he comes to, the, to this area, you should really go see him because he's, he's got a great delivery and he's very fun to listen to. He has relatively short poems, they're, they're, they're very funny and, and there's always a twist at the end of them. And he's got a great delivery. He's a very deadpan, kind of comedian-ish looking. And he, he looks like a really tall Bob Newhart. <laughs> okay, anybody who just laughed is officially old because your teenagers do not know who Bob Newhart is, trust me. (laughs) So he was, Billy Collins was in Seattle and he was reading all these poems and one of the poems that he read uh, was called The Revenant, which means words from the dead. And it's told from the point of view of a dog who's recently been euthanized. So it's being narrated from doggy heaven. And so the, the first line of the poem is this. I am the dog you put to sleep, as you like to call the needle of oblivion come back to tell you this simple thing, I never liked you, (laughs) right? It's very funny. It's a great poem, you should check it out. You should check it out in the library. It's in a collection called uh, The Trouble With Poetry. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, it's really quite funny. I won't belabor the, the point, but it, it, there's a nice twist at the end, trust me. But when I was in this audience and everyone was laughing hysterically at this poem, I, this uh, you know, light bulb went on over my head and I said, that's it. You know, the idea of a dog being reincarnated as a person could be a good story, but it has to be told from the point of view of the dog. So there's the idea, that's where Enzo was born. Enzo the dog was born there in that theater. And, and it was in the summer of 2006, and I, I was on tour for my last book, However, and Broke His Head and Other Secrets, available at all fine independent booksellers. And, uh, and I was going around Central Oregon and, and um, Idaho and Montana and Alaska, and any place I would go that would have me do a reading, I would go for, readings for two, three people at a time. It was, it's really a, it's, it's, it's tough when you're, when you're doing a book from a small press and, and no one really cares, it's, it's hard to, uh, to keep it going. But I was doing it and I, and I went down to Oregon and I said, I'm going to start this new book. And, and I, uh, I opened up my laptop and I checked into the hotel I opened up my laptop and the first line came to me. Gestures are all that I have. Sometimes they must be grand in nature. And I said, this is it. I've got this book. I know it. And I wrote and I wrote and four months later I had finished the first draft of The Art of Racing in the Rain which is very fast. I've never writ- written that fast before. It really just kind of dropped in. And I was very excited about it. I sent it off to my uh, editor in New York and waited patiently for him to call me. And, and a few weeks later, he did. He called me up. It was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving in 2006. I remember this date specifically because my in-laws were coming into town for Thanksgiving. They, my, my wife is a native New Yorker, and, and, and so in 2001, we moved to... Uh, Seattle, my in-laws had come to visit a couple times but they hadn't come for a holiday. So this was their first holiday they were coming to Seattle to be with the family and I, I felt I had to prove something to them, you know, I'd, I had moved their daughter and their lovely grandchildren off to the west coast and, and uh, so they couldn't see them very much anymore and I needed to make sure that they understood that we were thriving in the west coast environment and, and, and then, you know, and so I, I was really, there was a lot of pressure on me. And I do all the Thanksgiving cooking so I was like, I, I had to make a really, really good turkey. So uh, you can understand the apprehension that I had, and it was a Tuesday before Thanksgiving, I, I'm dry. I parked my car and I was walking into the Whole Foods at, on Roosevelt Avenue in Seattle uh, to get my uh, uh, Heidi Organic game hen. <laughs> Nothing is too good for my mother-in-law. <laughs> and I was going into the store and my cell phone rang and it was my agent. And I thought, oh, this is, this is great. Because, you know, I, I have all this pressure on me to produce for my in-laws, and now he's going to tell me he loves my book. So it's even more, you know, how Garth is good, you know. And it would be... So I answered my phone, very excited about this conversation. I said, what'd you think? And my agent said, it's narrated by a dog. <laughs> and I said, yes, yes, it is. I actually know that having written it, what would you think of the book? And he said to me, no one will read a book narrated by a dog. I can't sell a book narrated by a dog. No publisher will publish a book narrated by a dog. No marketing person would know how to market a book narrated by a dog. It's not even narrated by a dog. It's narrated by an author pretending to be a dog. (laughs) To which I said, Victor Hugo wasn't a hunchback. He was a French guy. He wrote this. (laughs) He wrote a book about. Does this ring a bell? (laughs) I got that line from a librarian in Florida. Yeah, yeah, no, but he, didn't, he totally didn't get the joke, or at least he didn't listen to it. I don't know what, he was just on his own tracks or something because he just went on and on and on at great length about this was the, the state of the industry and no one's buying fiction and this is really difficult because it's my third book and nobody has, uh, no one really read my first two, got good reviews, but no one really read my first two books and so this was a disaster, it was a complete disaster. I was ruining my career and worse, I was taking him down with me. And he ended his diatribe by saying, just do me a favor, take this book and throw it away, and go write me something I can sell. And I don't know what got into me, it was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, as I've said, I, the, thanks, the holiday spirit, I don't know, something got into me, these two words were just popped into my head and I couldn't get them out of my head, so I had to say them, not those words. <laughs> G-rated words. And I, so I just, I said them, I couldn't help myself. I said, "You're fired." So I fired my agent. I went inside to, I went inside to get my turkey, and I, the butcher guy handed me the turkey in the box, and, and I said, uh, "Would you read a book narrated by a dog?" <laughs> and he said, "Is it good?" And I said, that's the answer, right? That's what I, I want to hear. So, uh, so uh, Now, okay, so uh, let me, if I can give you, I, we probably have some writers in the, in the audience tonight. If I can give you a little bit of advice. Um, if you're working on your uh, third novel, and let's say your first two novels didn't sell all that well, they, they got good reviews, maybe even won a couple of awards, but they didn't sell very well. And let's say you're working on your third novel and it's told from an alternative point of view, like for instance, from a dog's point of view, and let's say you're going to get in a fight with your agent about that and you're going to uh, fire him, and it's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, when your in-laws are coming into town for a great big Thanksgiving day weekend. it's best not to tell your in-laws about that and uh, your, your spouse about that until after Thanksgiving. You'd be surprised how much dark meat there is on a turkey. <laughs> but my wife and I got through it OK. we were fine. And uh, we got through the weekend, and my my in laws were suitably impressed. And I immediately began sending out the book uh, to other agents to try and get a new agent. And they all, I got this, the response I got was the same, all the way across. Uh, We like the writing, we like the idea, everything's good, but uh, it's narrated by a dog. We can't, we don't know how to sell it, we don't know how to handle this book. And I, I didn't know what to do. I thought, am I really that out of touch? With the, I really was, I, I, I didn't know. I, I thought maybe I do throw it away, huh? Then I was at a uh, fundraiser for the King County Library Systems uh, in, C, in the Seattle area. It's the whole, King County is our county, and, and they've, it's a great library system. And They do a fundraiser, a big feast, and they have all these local writers there. So there are like 30 local writers there. And I was at the pre-author dinner and was at a table with a bunch of other writers, and we were going around the table introducing ourselves, and it came to me, and I said, Hi, my name is Garth, and I'm, I'm really frustrated, because I've got this book, and I think it's really good, but, you know, it's narrated by a dog, and no agent will touch it. And this other writer, sitting across the table from me, looked up from his plate, and he said, uh, Oh, hey, you, you know, you should call my agent. He sold my book, and it's narrated by a crow. <laughs> He said, I don't see why he couldn't sell a book narrated by a dog. <laughs> this is a true story. His name was Lane Mayhew. He wrote a book called Song of the Crow about a crow that stows away on Noah's Ark. And so I, I got his information and I, and I, uh, I sent my stuff to, to his agent and, uh, uh, on the following Monday. And two days later on the Wednesday after, uh, uh, after I had sent that out, I got a call from that agent and he was crying. And he said, I love this dog, I love this story, you have to let me represent this book. And that's a guy I needed, someone who really wanted it. And so he, we made some changes and he sent it out um, just about a year after I started writing the entire book. And uh, it, my publisher took it up and uh, it went on for three and a half years on the New York Times bestseller List in 35 languages, et cetera, proving that people will read a book narrated by, <laughs> by a dog. So, you know, what do you do after that? I mean, I, I jokingly said to my publisher, you know, uh, they're like, what are you going to do next? And I was like, well, <laughs> a book nerded by a cat <laughs> who wants to fly small planes. <laughs> I thought it was funny. <laughs> and then there was this really long pause on the conference call we were on, and I thought, oh, crap, they actually, they like that idea. It's like, no, no, I can't, I can't do that. You know, I can't just be the, the dog guy, I'm sorry. I, it, it's, not the, it's not just the dog thing that makes people like the art of the and there's something else to it. And so I, had, I wanted to work on something else. I wanted to work on, I had, this, I, ri- I had written a play in 2004 called Brother Jones, it had one production in Los Angeles and it went very well, it was, it was a wonderful small theater. Um, on the west side, and, and it really went well. But there was, there was a fundamental flaw with the play, and I, I knew what it was, and I knew it would take a lot of work to, to figure it out, and I'd have to workshop it and all that stuff. And I didn't have time because I suddenly had this idea about a book narrated by a dog, so I set it aside. Still, when I was done with The, with the Art of Racing in the Rain, I said, what am I gonna do next? I wanted to go back to that play, but not as a play. I love theater. I grew up kind of in the theater. I've always acted. Uh, I worked for a Broadway producer for a while in New York City. And um, I, I just love the magic of theater. Um, you know, theater is about the immediacy of the drama as it unfolds before our eyes. It's about these characters interacting with each other and we see the, the effects of all that. But the difference between theater and uh, novels is that with a novel we can trace the history of how we got to the now. So I can go way back in time. So while my play, Brother Jones, was essentially the same, and there's there's some significant differences, but there, uh, you know, the, the idea of the family drama in the present day is pretty much the same. Uh, what I was able to do with the book is go back into five generations of the Riddell family and really build out um, what what the history was like, and the history of the dysfunction that led to the present day dysfunction. So. In order to um, really uh, understand what a, a sudden light is, I have to put you into the book. Um, so, at first, I, I also want to acknowledge the fact that you know we really um, Seattle and the Minneapolis-St. Paul area are sort of sister cities um, uh, in in a lot of ways. Addiction to caffeine being one of them, um, but another way is that you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the Formative, uh, from what I understand, a lot of the formation of this area was based on the timber industry, timber barons. Um, and there's a, lot, there's a long history of that here. And when they got done with here, they came to Seattle. Uh, Seattle, you, know, you can't talk about the history of Seattle if you're not gonna talk about the history of trees. And we have a great many families uh, in the Northwest that came from this area uh, to uh, continue to build their fortune and to establish uh, presence in the Seattle area. So there's a lot of timber and stuff in a sudden light. Uh, there, there's an interesting thing about this. C- the history of Seattle is, is brief. Uh, it's brief when you talk about the history of uh, European civilization in Seattle. It's not brief if you talk about glaciers, millions of years. It's not brief if you talk about Native Americans. The, the first Native Americans in North America are in the, in the Alaska and Northwest area. Uh, but if you talk about the history of white people, it's pretty brief. 1851, there were no white people. 1852, there were white people. That's how it worked. And in the early days, Seattle was a, was a cowboy town. You know, It was pretty lawless and, and pretty, pretty wild. Uh, it wasn't until the later part of the 19th century that money started to move in from Minneapolis-St. Paul from New York and those areas, and they needed, they needed more stuff. They needed uh, symphonies, and they needed an opera house, they needed a museum, they needed things like that. And that's when culture, in the, in the late 1800s, is when culture really moved into Seattle. So that's where the beginnings of my, uh, of my family, the Riddell family, take place. Uh, in this area, then moving west. Um, so to, to put you into, into the mind of this, I, I, I'm gonna put you into the head of a 14-year-old boy. Now, the, uh, A Sudden Light is actually narrated by uh, Trevor Riddell, who's the youngest in the line of the Riddell family. Uh, but he's actually, a- as an adult, uh, telling the story of his fa- of, of, to his, um, his daughters and his wife. He's telling them the story of what happened to him when he was 14 years old, when his father brought him to Riddell House in the Northwest for the very first time. So there's a bit of a lens on it. So we, he's telling the story of him at 14 in 1990. So you, 1990 was a while ago, and it seems not that long ago, but it was actually long enough ago that you, if you remember 1990, everybody knew somebody like with a cell phone, but they never turned it on because the roaming charges were too expensive, <laughs> and it was like really big anyway, right? So it's a kind of a it's on the cusp of the digital era, 1990. So imagine that. So let me put, yourself, let me put you into this, the head of Trevor Riddell. You're a 14-year-old boy in 1990. You've grown up in rural Connecticut. You're, you're an only child. Your father is a, uh, he's a good guy, but you're not, you don't have a close relationship with him. He's very remote. He doesn't, he doesn't talk a lot. He's, in fact, he hasn't said anything about his family history, where he's come from and all that. You know very little about his background. He builds wooden boats for a living. Uh, it's a very traditional p- process, very painstaking, not very lucrative. Your mother is quite brilliant. She's originally from England. She has a PhD in comparative literature from Harvard University. And, but she's never done anything with her brilliance. You know, she, she's, she reads constantly. That's all she does, really. She walks around reading books. And around your farmhouse where you live in Connecticut, there's piles of books. Everywhere you look, there's a book. And so as a result, at 14 years old, you're quite well read. And then something turns, something bad happens, your father makes some bad business decisions, he loses his boat business, and as a result, has to declare bankruptcy, and as a further result, you lose the house where you grew up. Under the strain of this economic tumult, your parents uh, separate. They decide, your mother says she's gonna go off to Uh, uh, England for the summer to like reconvene, get back together with her family, and your father is going to take you back to where he grew up in Seattle for the summer. Because your father has a plan. He grew up on this big estate in the Northwest. Uh, It's not uh, not much now, but the land is quite valuable, and he and his sister, your aunt, Serena, figure if they can sell off this land to a developer to build McMansions, well then, all their problems will be solved because money, as we all know, solves all problems. And you at 14 are all for this plan because you just want your parents to get back together. You just want to have a family. You go to Seattle for the first time, you drive through the city and you get into smaller, smaller roads, you get off the freeway and the roads get smaller and smaller. You go through a, a gate, a guard, past a guard booth and through a gate you didn't realize your father grew up in a gated community and down winding roads and the houses that are quite wealthy. I mean, it's really exclusive area and, and until you get to the end of the road, and it's not so, it looks a little ramshackle uh, to you. You go through that final gate and then you end up uh, coming out into a big clearing. Uh, to your right is Puget Sound, sparkling in this July sunlight, and beyond that, the Olympic Mountains. The Blue Olympic Mountains. If any of you have been out to the northwest, you know what that looks like. And to your left, across the clearing, is a gigantic mansion. It's huge. I mean, something you can't believe anybody would have a a house this size before. And it's made entirely of trees, built uh, with bark still on them, like giant trees using as pillars, holding up the roof. And you, again, you didn't realize your father grew up in a place in a house of this size, and there must be 40 bedrooms at least in this house. You cross the field and you get up to the house, and you realize it's in really bad shape. It's listing to one side. The downspouts are broken. It's not it's not taken care of at all, and and the window the the paint is peeling off the window frames. You go in the front door, and it's very somber and you know very solid and and old. Clearly, at one time very valuable, but now it's uh, dusty and it smells of mo- moisture and decay, and you look off to your right and there's the gentleman's salon which is dark and oaken and somber, and, and next to the fireplace there's a, a large painting, must be eight feet tall, of a man, an old man, with, wearing a suit and with long white hair, and he's got a cane in one hand, and with his other hand he's reaching out of the painting as if he's trying to pull you into the painting with him. Your father comes up behind you. That's Elijah Riddell, he says. He built this place. That's your great-grandfather. Your father then leads you down a dark hallway to the back of the house where there's a gigantic kitchen, and in that house you meet for the first time your Aunt Serena. Well, when your father said you had an Aunt Serena, you figured, yeah, of course, everyone has an Aunt Serena, right? You know, she's an old lady, she's a little dowdy, she goes, oh, Trevor, let's have some cookies. Yeah, that's not your Aunt Serena. She's 35 years old and she's smoking hot. <laughs> and she wears it, I mean, she wears dresses and she's got the whole push-up thing going on, and, She never wears shoes in the house, thus exposing her uh, beautiful feet and blue painted toenails, which you find mesmerizing. And when you talk to her, it's always a game. She's always re-questioning anything you say. She comes back with some kind of retort, keeping you off balance. You don't know how to deal with it. She's flirting with you. You can imagine how this can mess with a 14-year-old boy's brain. You go out onto the front porch again and you see for the first time your Grandpa Samuel. Grandpa Samuel looks a lot like the guy in the painting in the, in the salon. He's an old guy with long white hair, and he's wearing all black clothes, even though it's a west-facing view, and the sun is just baking down the afternoon sun. He must be really hot, all wearing all black. He's wearing black pants and a black T-shirt, and you look closely at his black T-shirt, and you say, he's got words on it, and so you read what the words say, and his black T-shirt says, God was my co-pilot, but then we crashed in the mountains, and I had to eat him. And you say, that's funny. And he says, what? You say, that's your shirt. That's actually funny. And he said, uh, he looks down at his shirt and he says, oh, I, Serena dresses me. Which we come to learn later on, Serena dresses him ironically uh, with weird sayings on his shirts that he doesn't know. He doesn't know the billboards that he's wearing. So now, what do we do then? What happens next? We're in this situation, uh, your 14-year-old kid, 1990, there is no Xbox 360s, there's no Game Boys. There are no, there's no internet, there, you know, there's no cable TV, you're in this old house, your father is reticent at best, your mother is many time zones away in England, barely, if you can reach her, it's a bad connection, your grandfather may or may not have dementia, and your Aunt Serena, everything with her is a game, you can't get a straight answer out of her, so what do you do? You start wandering the hallways. You start opening doors. You start looking around. You start trying to investigate things because you go into a library, for instance, an old library, and you start pulling volumes from, a, from the bookshelf, books that haven't been opened in decades, and when you open them, maybe you find something. Maybe you find a letter between f- former relatives, or maybe you find a, a, some journals, a diary that someone kept, or other sorts of clues to your family's history so that you can sort of unravel what's going on. And if you listen closely enough, you start hearing that the house is telling you things. The house is actually speaking to you. And if you're there long enough, you believe that there is someone in the house who can tell you the truth. But that person may not actually be a person. That may be a spirit of some kind. I want to read just a really brief, Couple par- couple paragraphs from this chapter, and then speak a little bit more, and then we can go to questions and stuff like that. <clears throat> this is this far into the book. Uh, chapter thirty: uh, Behold this dreamer. I've never used chapter titles before, and and I rather liked it, so I'll, I think I'm going to do it again. Uh, this was fun. I, I did. A, there are a lot of literary allusions in the chapter titles. Behold this dreamer is. Uh, a reference to a book of essays and poems by Walter de la Mer, who's a French poet who, uh, who wrote um, when I was a kid, a poem that I really loved, um, was really enchanted by, and, and applies to this book. It, it was a poem called The Listeners. I don't know if any of you have heard that. Is there anyone there, said the traveler, knocking on the moonlit door? and his horse in the silence chomped the grasses of the forest's ferny floor, and a bird flew out of the turret above the traveler's head, and he smote upon the door a second time. Is there anybody there, he said. Never the least stir made the listeners, though every word he spake fell, listen- fell echoing through the lone house by the one man left awake, Etc. Etc. a guy just knocking on a house, on a door of a house, but there are people listening, even though nobody is listening. We were more than a week into our stay, 10 days by the calendar, and I had taught myself how to walk down the long, dark hallways without making a sound. I had familiarized myself with the stairways that were obvious and some that were not, back stairs in front, servant stairs in front of house. I had found linen closets with hidden panels to store things, what was stored in these places over the decades, I didn't know. I understood Riddell House in a way I could only describe as fundamental, Sometimes, when I walked down the long corridor at night and ventured into the south wing, I felt as if I had become the house. The house told me when to turn, where to go next, what to discover, and when I stopped in a room during my nightly explorations, I always knew Ben was there with me because I breathed with measured breaths and I didn't move a gram of body weight. I made no sound. I waited until Ben's shallow breath fell out of sync with mine and I could hear us both breathing. I didn't want anything from Ben but the truth. He was there when my grandmother died. He knew what happened between my father and his mother and father, and he seemed to be the only one who was willing to tell me anything. I stood in a room that was entirely empty except for a bare mattress on a metal frame. The moon shone across the water and tickled the ceiling and walls with flecks of light. I heard Ben's breath independent of my own, so I knew he was with me. He placed his hand on my shoulder and leaned toward me so I could feel his phantom weight and he whispered my name. Tell me, I said, but he said nothing. That night, I had another dream. And he goes on to then explain his, the dream that he had, r- relate the dream that he had to us. I read that for a pretty specific reason. If you, if you read the book, and I hope you do, uh, the front matter of, of it, you'll see that I dedicated the book to my dead father. And I did that very specifically. I did that, um, and when, once I did it, my publisher in New York immediately called me up and he said, you know, are you sure you wanna do that? It sounds a little angry. And I said, yeah, it's a little angry. I'll stand behind that. But there's another reason that I wanted to, to make that reference. Um, when I'm writing a book, and I don't know if other writers out there have the com- this common experience, When I write a book, I find that you, and I'm starting one, I'm working on one now, I'm in the early stages of a new book right now, and I find that you start a book by trying to do something. A writer does. I want to do this, and my goal is to get this. But at a certain point, the book gains enough ballast that the book starts telling the writer what the book is about. Um, I I liken it to pushing a rock up a hill. Like, if I'm starting to push a rock up a hill, you know, I'm exerting my effort to get it up there. And I get it up to the top of the hill, and then I start to get over on the other side, it starts to roll down the other side. And at that point, it's not about me, it's about the rock. Getting it up the hill is about me. Once it starts rolling, it's about the rock. And then my job is just to be the guide for the book, just to be the steward of the rock, just to make sure the rock doesn't run over any Priuses or something, you know? or any other car, for those of you who don't drive Priuses. And I know if you do drive a Prius, I know who you are. You're the ones who speed everywhere because you think it's ecologically sound. (laughs) I watch, I know. Anyway, when I'm rolling the rock down the other side, that's when you you're just trying to steer the rock. Then it's about the rock. And it's the same thing with a book. When you start a book, you're trying to do something, and then the book starts to tell you what it's about. And it's really important for the author to, be, to listen for this and to be cognizant of it and respectful of it and say, okay, it's not about me, it's about my book. Uh, if you don't do that, it becomes contrived. It becomes about, you're trying to force it to do something. You're trying to force the rock someplace the rock doesn't want to go. And we've all read these books. These are books you get like two thirds of the way through and you're like, oh man, I love this book, I love, the, I love the characters, and I love the way it's written, it's just really, I'm rocking on this book. But, and then something happens about two thirds of the way through, and you say, oh, ooh, wait, what? I don't think, it's, really? And then you read a few more pages, and you're like, wait, oh, uh, I don't think so. And then you put that book down on your bedside table, and you may not pick it up again. That's because the writer enforced his, his or her ego on the story instead of listening. So I'm very cognizant of that idea. So when I was in the early stages of writing this book, and I told you, I wrote it as a uh, play first, so I was like trying to figure out what it was all about, and in the early stages of trying to figure out what it was all about, uh, something kind of unfortunate happened in uh, my life. My father got very ill. And at the time, he was 75 years old, and he was not the guy who was gonna die young. You know, He walked four miles a day and he did yoga twice a week. So it was a little bit surprising. He He got a strange lung ailment, and nobody in the hospital had a clue what, what it was. They kept saying, has he been, you know, cleaning out an old attic somewhere or has he been to the Sahara Desert recently? Uh, which is kind of weird, but I did some research and it's all about SARS and this idea of this you know, assault to the lungs that we just can't explain. And so he was in the hospital for about three weeks and then, as many of you possibly know, if you're in the hospital for a few weeks, you start to get sick of being in the hospital. I mean, you start to pick up secondary infections that only exist in the hospital. And that's what happened to him. And the next thing you know, things went downhill and the snowball just got bigger and bigger. And the next thing you know, it was curtains for Marvin. And that was it. And that was when I was in the early stages of, of writing this book. If any of you have lost loved ones, you'll probably understand what I'm gonna say here, which is it's very easy to get caught up in the business of death, right? Uh, My mother was obviously distraught by what happened. My sister lives in California. She wasn't really around until the very end. I was dealing with it all. And you know, I'm good at it. I'm good at that kind of stuff. I'm a good producer. So I could deal with all the things and the arrangements and the lawyers and the funeral homes and the doctors and the hospital, all, and the party. We had an awesome party. My father loved uh, martinis, uh, but only with a twist, never with olives, and so we served martinis only with twists, never with olives at his memorial service and stuff. So we, it was good. I, I was pretty proud of myself for the way I handled that, but I understood that I didn't really take on of course, sort of the ramifications of my father's death, you know, the full impact of it. So I wasn't surprised when four months or so after he died I had a series of dreams. I had four dreams in a row, consecutive nights, very similar, not repetitive in any way, In each of these dreams my father came to me and we had a conversation. One night it would be about banal, everyday, ordinary things, garbage pickups and that kind of thing. Another day, large, philosophical, life-changing you know, changing ideas. And after the fourth night, old Marvin got up and walked away, and that was it. Haven't seen him since. We love to explain things in our society with science. God, we love it. We love it so much. We don't need god anymore we just have science we can explain any phenomenon possible and i think it's really fascinating the way we do it you know and and it's easy to do it's easy and i can explain this series of dreams easily with science right i was traumatized by my father's death and I hadn't dealt with it when he died. Months later, I had a bad piece of sausage pizza, leftover sausage pizza, which I didn't heat up enough to kill the bacteria. I got a little bit of a food poisoning thing going on. Random synapses fired in my brain and images of my father came up. Boom. That's it. No problem, right? Easy. We can dismiss it. It's just a random occurrence. Just chance. No, there's no connection of any kind. But I don't like to believe that. I just don't, I don't think that's the way it is. And actually, if you look at the most cutting edge, the most forward-thinking scientific minds, what are they thinking right now? If you go read, if you go into this library right now and pick up some Stephen Hawking, what are you gonna read? Are you gonna read that, oh yeah, yeah, everything that we see, that's all it is, and we can encapsulate it, and we can hold on to it, and we know everything. No, he's gonna tell you, oh, actually, there are 18 dimensions, we just can't see 14 of them. What? If we start talking about string theory, unified field theory, quantum mechanics, quantum physics, these sorts of ideas, a particle observed acts differently than a particle that is unobserved? How do you explain that? I think that there's stuff that goes on in those other 14 dimensions. I think there are connections that we just can't see, and I kind of feel a little silly that we as a society have the hubris to say, well, because we can't see it, it doesn't exist. I think that's a little presumptuous. I, I don't think it's a good way to go about our, our worlds. So if you take my theories of the way, and not just mine, but from the readings that I'm doing, readings of, of minds today, then how do we interpret these dreams my father, of my father? How do we interpret those? Here's a possible possibility. My father did die prematurely. My father did have something unresolved that he wanted to say to me. I don't know about my mother and my sister. Maybe he had his own encounters with them. Maybe they didn't notice them or they just dismissed them. I don't know. I can only speak to my own experiences. I remember those very clearly. And I think that he came back because he wanted to continue the conversation. And what better way for a spirit to reach out to us but in our sleep state? Our walls are down. That cynicism, the skepticism that we carry around with us all the time, we don't have that when we're asleep, right? We're 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 just there. And how easy is it for a spirit to come to us in our sleep? There's no physical manifestation they have to create energy for at all. They don't have to slam a door. They don't have to blow cold air down a hallway or or make a light go on suddenly. They don't have to use a a soap in the bathroom to write a message on a mirror. So That's my favorite one. So when you get in the shower and and the the steam makes the message come up. They don't have to do that at all. They They just get to be there. And they're there, and we have that time. And you know, it, it's, it's funny, I've, I've been telling this story since the book came out, and I've been going around the country giving these talks and stuff. And every time, and I guarantee you, someone is going to come up to me. I promise you, someone here is going to come up to me. Every time someone has come up to me in the signing line, and they kind of look around a little, like, to see who's listening. And then they say, but it didn't feel like a dream, did it? It felt different didn't it? It felt more substantial. It, you remember it clearer. It was, something, it was almost a waking state, right? You, you were there, right? And I say, yeah. And then that person will say, that happened to me with my fill-in-the-blank. My father, my mother, my spouse, my sister, my brother, my child. Someone who died prematurely. I think it's a common experience. I think we, we avert our eyes because we're afraid of what it really means. What it means is that we are, there's more out there, that, that our soul continues, that the, light, the, the world is bigger than, than these things that we have, that we see in front of us, that we have a continuing journey, and therefore we have to be, if we're aware of that, we can appreciate that journey more, we can live it more fully. So that's my book, A Sudden Light. You know, I, I, I hesitate to call it a ghost story there are ghosts in it, but it's not a scary ghost story. There, it's not the haunting of Hill House. There, you're not gonna find Johnny Depp uh, dead in a, in a waterbed. That's you know, the night we're on Elm Street. Remember that? Johnny Depp when he was, anyway. So No, that is not, it's, it's a spiritual story. It's a story about a redemption. It's a story about fathers and sons. It's about how that, that fundamental relationship uh, echoes through generations of a family. It's a story about how, how, connected, how we're connected to nature, uh, how, how nature and, and we live together. Uh, the, uh, in the history of the book, which you get into in, in the book, um, Benjamin Riddell, the son of Elijah Riddell, Elijah sends him off to Yale University to be educated in, in one of the first forestry schools that existed. Yale had one of them, well, not the first one, but among the first. Uh, in the 1800s and he sent his son off there as a good timber baron would do to get educated. And of course, Ben fell under the influence of other thoughts that were going on in that era. What were the other thoughts in that era? The thoughts of the transcendentalists, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, the idea that we are part of nature, God is nature, God is us, we are all connected. Previous to that, Walt Whitman, the poetry of Walt Whitman. John Muir was doing an awful lot of writing around that time. And then our great president, Teddy Roosevelt, came onto the scene with a little bit of a vengeance, didn't he? He came on and said, no, no, actually, we're going to create national parks. And his forestry lieutenant, Gifford Pinchot, they, the two of them took on the whole idea. They took on all the, 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 the capitalistic uh, timber barons and said, no, no, we're, this is what we're doing. And they passed a law, you know, the, the government, the, the Congress passed a law saying, no, no, no more of that. No more just ascribing land to the national forests. And at 12 o'clock on that one night, when the, hit, when the, when the, when the croc, clock struck 12, they, it was gonna be over. So what did Teddy do? He called up his buddy Gifford. And he said, come on over to the White House, we gotta look at a map. And so that evening, before he couldn't, he couldn't stop, it, before he couldn't it would be restricted in what lands he could bring over to the U.S. government for the national parks, he and GIF got together and they took a big pen on the United States and they said, here, 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 way up here, and a bunch of stuff down here. Millions of acres in the 11th hour. It was really quite a brilliant move. And you know, uh, Teddy Roosevelt and Gifford Pinchot were not paupers. They came from very wealthy families. Gifford Pinchot, his family made all their money clear cutting in the Adirondack Mountains. So all that stuff, so you can imagine these things going on and you send your son off to school and he comes back, you say, okay, great, you're taking over my business. And he's like, you know, dad, here's the thing. There's more to this conversation. So that's what a sunlight is about.
0: And with that we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for garth stein and his work in this book club we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if garth stein lets his friends or family read his works before they are published and if so does he take any advice they may give?
1: Ah, yes. Uh, that's a good question. Um, so my wife is my uh, my first reader, uh, my most dependable critic, my best advisor. Uh, she uh, is indefatigable with her criticisms. <laughs> She's... She's with me in the dark times when things aren't going so well, and she's with me in the good times uh, when things are, to celebrate with me when things are going nicely. I dare say my wife is my muse. Uh, but before you get all gooey with the whole muse thing. (laughs) She's not like one of those muses with the long, you know, from the Renaissance paintings with the long white gowns and the little halo over her head. And she doesn't like float in the corner, sprinkling pixie dust on my keyboard when I'm writing. No, no. If you want to think of my wife as muse, you got to go a little dark. You know, S and M dominatrix muse. You know, black leather, the whole thing. Get back in your office and don't come out until you finished your chapter. That kind of muse. So, yeah, she, she's, the, but she's the only one. Um, I, I, I've uh, There are too many things going on uh, in, in the, I, I have a difficult time with that. And some people don't, and some writers have, a, a, you know, reading group, writing groups and that kind of thing, and they, they work with other writers. It's hard for me to do that, because I may be here, uh, but I'm working on something over here, and you don't know, wh- maybe I'm already thinking about what I'm changing here, or maybe w- the theory that I have, see, when I, when I teach writing workshops, um, I use this uh, uh, a quote that is often misattributed to Hemingway. Apparently, Hemingway did not say this, but everyone says that he did. So Hemingway did not say, write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> but if he had said it, what he would have meant was you want to release the uh, inhibitions when you're writing uh, and, and you want to craft it and sculpt it when you're editing what you've written. In other words, you don't want to re- edit while you're writing, that's bad. So I've changed it a little bit to a little more politically correct and a little more uh, sobering um, phrase. I say write fat, edit lean so everyone loves a fat baby i mean who doesn't love a fat baby they're so cute they've got their fat little legs and their fat little toes they've got their fat little fingers and their cheeks you're fat everyone i mean they're i mean how can you you want to you know they got the gripper toes you put your finger in there and they like go eh, like little monkeys that's a that's an instinct that's not, that's just a reaction our body has because when we were monkeys we were clinging so desperately to our Mama's fur as they were running through the trees trying to not get eaten by lions. So it's so cute. We love fat babies What? that didn't you didn't follow that? You okay with that? All right. But we love fat babies, but you know, then when they, get, when they grow up, okay, we, then, we, then we want them to, you know, we go put them into training, right? Then we, we put them into, the, their, they go into the sports. LeBron James, we don't want fat. We want a lean, strong, powerful LeBron James, but we want a fat baby. Same thing with our books. We want them fat, we just put everything you have, when you're writing your first draft, just put everything you think of. No inhibitions, just throw it in there, it's fine. We'll be able to put it on a diet and get put it in training. We'll squeeze it down, we'll get the good stuff. But all that stuff that you put in there, that's gonna add flavor to it. It's gonna inform everything else that you write.
0: Our next question is what Garth Stein studied in college. I
1: went to Columbia University, so, uh, Columbia College. So I studied English. And then I just got so sick of, of writing essays in blue books. You know, in the old days you wrote essays in blue books. I hated the freaking blue books. Oh my God, and so I just, I got to get out of here. So I I ended up, um, I went into, uh, I wanted to be a writer, but I thought it was irresponsible at 22 years old to declare myself a novelist, because uh, the position has um, a starting salary of zero (laughs) and absolutely no benefits at all. So I I went to, I got a graduate degree, I got an MFA in film, uh, figuring I would write screenplays. But I had a weird allergic reaction to screenwriting and I couldn't do it. I ended up uh, uh, fortunately meeting a really wonderful documentary film editor, Jeff Bartz, um, who has edited some of the great documentary filmmakers of all time. In the golden age of documentaries, Albert and David Maisel, the Mazel brothers, uh, D.A. Pennebaker, Frederick Wiseman, uh, Jeff Bartz edited a lot of their films. So he kind of took me under his wing and said, let's talk about nonfiction storytelling. So I'd made documentaries
0: for a long time. This audience member asks about the use of pseudonyms and if Garth Stein ever thought of using one. In terms of um,
1: using a pseudonym,
0: um, I don't
1: use a pseudonym. Um, (laughs) It never even occurred to me. uh, I'm desperate for as much attention as I can possibly get. (laughs) As as my wife says, I only like a party if it's about me. And it's true, um, so I, I don't have any issues with that. And what I've found uh, in terms of writing about personal stuff is that people, and not just me, I thought it was just me at first, but people in general are really delusional about themselves. Uh, so I can write all sorts of transparent crap that I can look at and my sister can look at and I say, oh, that's my mother. And my mother will read it and she's like, oh, that's a weird character. Who is that, Who, what terrible person is that? And be like. That is actually you. So I don't think people. I, I don't. I've found that people aren't looking for themselves, um, uh, and if they are, they're respectful enough to keep it to themselves. I guess I've never had any problem. But then you know, I I, uh, I guess I've read a, I've led a pretty uh, calm life.
0: Our last question of the night comes from an audience member who asked Gar Stein about how he came up with the Riddell family the central characters in A Sudden Light.
1: How did I come up with the Riddell family? Ah, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, people have always asked me, is the Riddell family based on any particular uh, Northwest uh, timber family? I, it's not based on any one family. Uh, it's based on a, a number of them, um, uh, sort of I- uh, ideas and things that I've stolen through by reading, doing the research that I did. Um, I jokingly say, yeah, I didn't do, but I didn't base it on any one family because I, I want them all to fight over who it's really about. Um, but really, it, it, it just kind of is a, a creation. But you know, the ideas of having immense amount of wealth and losing that wealth came from a very specific family um, who I will not name, uh, and actually didn't make their money in timber, but did uh, live in the highlands, which is the where the, the north, the fictional idea of the north estate is based on the highlands in Seattle, which is extremely wealthy. Uh, enclave that I grew up kind of next door to, down the road from. Uh, I was at an event though last week, and, and a man came up to me and he introduced himself, and I was like, ah oh, yeah, the part about the losing everything that came from your dad, uh, but I say people are delusional. He didn't see that at all, so it's cool. Um, but <laughs> yeah, so the the Riddell family is really sort of a an amalgamation of a lot of the Northwest. Money. It's a fascinating, you know, the idea of building the highlands was kind of very cool uh, if, you're, if you're really rich. <sighs> Which apparently is what all of, I'm just finished, I just finished uh, today, I just finished reading Russell Brand's book, Revolution. I recommend it to you all. Um, he basically says the same thing in today as it was uh, 150 years ago. If you're rich, things are really cool. Um, in, the, in the Northwest, <laughs> You know, in the Northwest, Seattle was being built and they were, design, you know, they were working on the city and, and they, they actually did a very neat thing. They brought in the Olmsted brothers, the sons of Frederick Law Olmsted. Frederick Law Olmsted, you know, the great park designer who did Central Park and, as well as many other places. The Olmsted brothers continued his practice after he died, the sons. And they came in and they did a comprehensive city plan for Seattle. So a lot of Seattle, they didn't finish the plan, but the beginnings of Seattle, the neighborhood where I live for instance, is full of these boulevards and it's very lovely. The idea was no house would be more than a half a mile from a playground or a park. And you could actually walk through the park system uh, with these little pocket parks that are there and you can never leave the park and walk all the way from way down past Seward Park in the south all the way up through Interlaken and into Lake Union without ever leaving a park. It's very cool. So then the rich guys got together and said, well, we need a golf course. You know, we want a good one, and we want it to be a Lynx course. You know, the Lynx courses when golf was first invented, you know, if you look at the, if you are golf fans and you, you look at St. Andrews or something with the, these, the big Lynx courses where there are no trees, they're not like groomed courses like we see on the PGA Tour and all that. They're just go that way, and then you turn around, you go that way, and you turn around, you go that way. So they wanted to build a links course and one of the rich guys said, well I just clear cut 600 acres or so about 12 miles north of the city, so why don't we go build it up there? So they did and they built this golf course and, they, and then they said, well let's build our cottages around the golf course. So they drew lots on who would get what plot of land and they started building their cottages. And the first guy built his cottages about 8,000 square feet. And then the next guy built his cottage, about 12,000 square feet and so on. And they, these mansions, they were building these huge mansions around this golf course. And the golf course is, is there, of course, Seattle Golf Club, and they, they actually have some PGA events there uh, er, occasionally. And the area uh, that, they, that they live in, is still there, this very uh, exclusive enclave called the Highlands. Well, I grew up down the street from the Highlands in an area called Innes Arden, which is just to the north of the Highlands. The, the, the highlands, uh, the area where I grew up, uh, Innis Arden, started out as the Boeing family's hunting grounds. It's always cool to have hunting grounds. I've always wanted like seven or 800 acres of hunting grounds. You know, they had a groundskeeper there to make sure there were enough deer to shoot when you wanted to go shoot. You get some grouse there, you shoot some grouse. Someone else cleans them and plucks them and then you eat them. I mean, it would be awesome. So at some point, though, in the 50s, the Boeing family decided they were gonna develop this land and they built up a whole bunch of houses there. A lot of them are very nice. They look over Puget Sound. My mother says we grew up on the dark side of Innisfar. and we grew up. We didn't have a view. We grew up in the in the in the woods, but uh, we had something better for me as a kid growing up. We had a creek across the street, uh, Boeing Creek or Hidden Creek. We called it, um, but Boeing Creek was, was there, and it ran down to the uh, to Puget Sound, and we could go down into the creek and like have all sorts of fun. Oh yeah, I mean when you're in the in the 70s, see things. Things aren't like they are now. Like now, like you can't even leave like sight of your mother or father, and they're coming after you. Like, oh, text me, text me, please. I, you know, it's like we're so petrified. I, my kids are so programmed; they've got everything they've got to do. And this, but in the '70s, nobody cared. <laughs> Both my parents worked in the summers. I didn't have summer camps. What? We hung out, man. In the summers, it was be home by. When I call for dinner, my mother would go to the back door and call out, "Dinner!" Show up, don't get yourself abducted. Those are the only rules. (laughs) As a result, we spent a lot of time going down to the creek. Uh, And remember also in those days, we had big bowls of matches, right? Because everybody, all restaurants had matches and stuff. And so we would go down to the, we'd take a bunch of matches and go down to the creek and and we'd burn shit. (laughs) We burned stuff, man, we just burned like crazy. (laughs) And oh, my favorite part was we'd have like army guys and like tanks and stuff, those green little army guys. And, and then we'd like do little fake battles. And then if you lost, you'd have to pour paint thinner on your army guys and light them on fire. That was cool. And God forbid, like one of the kids, like their family would go to North Bend, the Indian Reservation it was, uh, to get, and they would come back with fireworks, firecrackers, M80s, and that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. It was carnage at the creek. We all have our fingers. Were good, but yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd recommend it to my children. So that's where I grew up. And when we were doing this stuff, I would always look up across the creek and on the hill. You could see we called it Boeing Mansion. It, it wasn't Boeing Mansion. It was they call it Nordcliffe. It was a, one of the famous old, uh, one of the famous old mansion. I believe the Stimson family built it. But you could see it was just huge, white and gleaming, and, and it's a weird stucco with a red roof. And it would peek through, and we'd always say, "Who are those weird people who live in the Highlands?" Who are they and why are they there and how do they get there and why are they different from us? Now there are normal people who live in the highlands, sometimes. <laughs> but I always do wonder that. And so that's where sort of the inspiration for uh, the setting of this book, the idea of being in the woods, being by yourself in the woods, and then listening and hearing things. <laughs> I'll be signing books and we can chat a little bit more and stuff. And I do really thank you very much for coming out. please, please. Please. Remember to support your bookstores and your libraries. And thank you so much for coming out. It was a real pleasure getting to meet you all.
0: Thanks. Well, that's it from our Galaxy Library event with Garth Stein in Dakota County. Catch our last club book event of the season with Sonia Nazario at 7 p.m. Monday, April 27th at Hennepin County's Southdale Library in Edina. Sonia Nazario is the foremost journalist writing today on topics of social justice. In 2006, Nazario published Enrique's Journey, a widely acclaimed novel profiling children emigrating from Latin America. It remains one of the three most popular community reads selections in the country. Meet Sonia Nazario, get your questions answered and book signed. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, Sign up for our e newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle ClubbookMN. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa. Library Strategies in Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MINPOST, Around Town Agency, the St. Paul Hotel, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.